United and Resilient, a podcast designed to help heal and support the El Paso community. Hello, I'm your host, Mariana Sierra, Outreach Coordinator for the El Paso United Family Resiliency Center, a program of United Way of El Paso County. We are dedicated to serve those who were impacted directly or indirectly by August 3rd. Join us on the journey to long-term recovery as we have honest conversations with local leaders, mental health specialists, and fellow El Pasoans who share their stories and expertise. We feature topics that influence and impact the vitality and resilience of our community. We are El Paso United, and together we heal. Juntos sanamos. Dear listener, before we begin, a note of warning. The topic we're about to explore contains a mention of the mass casualty event and a description of the events that unfolded thereafter. This episode may not be suitable for everyone. Please note that any views or opinions shared in this program are personal and belong solely to the individual and do not represent the United Way of El Paso County or the El Paso United Family Resiliency Center. Any views stated are not meant to malign any religion, ethnic group, club, organization, company, or individual. Thank you for listening to our podcast. Hello, welcome back to United and Resilient. Thank you so much for joining us today. As we hit the two-year mark of August 3rd, 2019, we want El Pasoans to know that the El Paso United Family Resiliency Center continues and will continue to offer support to the borderline community during these challenging times. Through this episode, we talk to Congresswoman Veronica Escobar, who reflects on a day that is now part of our history. We talk about the importance of mental health in our borderland and the meaning of resiliency. We'll also discuss the impact this tragedy had in our community and how she was able to process everything as a leader, but more importantly, as an El Pasoan. We're honored to have Congresswoman Veronica Escobar as a guest. Congresswoman Escobar, I'm really thankful that you were able to join us today. Welcome to United and Resilient. Oh, Mariana, thank you so much. It is my privilege and honor to be with you today. Thank you. So, Congresswoman, I want the audience to get to know you a little bit better. I know we've seen you on TV. We've we've heard so many interviews from you. But what are some interesting facts that the community might not be aware till this day? You know, it's I've been in, in public service for so long that I almost feel like there's nothing that people don't know about me. But, um, I, you know, people generally are surprised when they get to know me that uh, I love animals very much. You know, I, I try to rescue animals when I can and get them adopted, uh, especially kitties. I have a special um, place in my heart for kitties. Um, I love cooking. I love gardening. Um, anything that is um, about kind of investing my time in something that gives back, it gives me so much joy, so much satisfaction. Um, and I think that's probably why I love animals and gardening and cooking. Um, and of course, I just adore my family, it's, you know, my my husband, my two kids, they are the center of my universe. Um I don't know that people necessarily didn't know that, but if they didn't, there you go. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Well, there again, you know, um, us Hispanics, we're very, very family oriented. So just like you, my family is my whole world and I love them till ugh, so much. So can you tell us a little bit about why you chose your current position in leadership? Did you always knew that you wanted to be in politics? If so, why or how? What was your journey like? My journey was very, um, I would say, indirect to politics. I never imagined that I would be in politics. Never really thought I I, I wanted to do it. It, it always, to me, uh, seemed like it would be too frustrating, and it was it was something for somebody else to do. And, you know, I, I was, I've always been a very good voter and always very on top of 
current affairs, you know, ever since I was a teenager, but I just, I was not attracted to politics. It wasn't something that motivated me. And I was the teacher for 10 years. I taught at the University of Texas at El Paso, you know, Utah. Hey, there you go. (laughs) (laughs) I I taught at community college and I loved it. I loved having, um, you know, my interactions with students. I loved teaching them. I loved learning from them. And it was what I thought I was going to do for the rest of my life. But I ultimately got civically engaged because of immigration. And I was an immigrant rights advocate and activist in my 20s, was still teaching. And I got involved in my very first campaign in 1996 as a volunteer. And it was for a candidate who was running for this congressional seat, for congressional District 16, and uh, a candidate who really inspired me named Jose Luis Sanchez was really excited about his race. I I felt so motivated um, and he lost, unfortunately. And, uh, but I kept helping and supporting other candidates. And finally, I was encouraged to run for office myself. I had to be convinced to do it because I, I was very reluctant to do it, but it's been, an incredibly gratifying experience, a a real gift in my life to be able to serve the community. Yes. And something that, you know, we always hear around is that El Paso is so unique, right? El Paso is so special. And sometimes as El Pasoans, we don't really see it because we're so used to it. I guess we really realize we're so unique once we go out there and we live in different cities. I know I I've lived in, in different towns and, you know, got out of even Texas and I really realized how special my community was. So, um, recognizing that El Paso is so unique, uh, in so many ways, what does being a leader of El Paso mean to you? You are 100% right. El Paso is so unique and special. You know, I have for years described us as living in this little bubble. Right. This this cocoon, right? Where we were geographically um, isolated from a lot of um, seats of power. You know, we're pretty far away from Austin, Texas, very far away from Washington, D.C., far away from Mexico City, you know, and and we're this island. And because we have been in our cocoon or in our bubble, we've become a very resilient community. We are also, I think, very deeply connected to one another in a way that is beautiful. Um, I think Hispanics or Latinos are traditionally very family oriented um, people, you know, in in a general sense, but in El Paso, I think that's especially true. And so all of those facets of who we are do make us very unique and very special. And, and you add to that, that we are an international or, or binational community and, and you sprinkle in even more specialness. And so in, in the roles that I have had in public service, whether it was as a county commissioner or as county judge, or now as a member of Congress, I have always felt this, this, um, this, this incredible obligation to represent El Paso for who she is. And who El Paso is, in my view, is a, a welcoming, kind, good-hearted, open-armed community that takes care of people. Mm-hmm. So those were the values I was raised with. Those are the values of this community, very generally speaking. And so that's the policy that I pursue in Washington. Those were the policies I pursued in county government. And I also feel very, very strongly that it's my obligation to stand up for our community. And we know that border communities, El El Paso included, and sometimes El Paso especially, border communities have been very maligned by other politicians, by people looking to advance their own harmful agenda, and they've tried to paint us as a dangerous place or a place that should be feared by the rest of the country. 
And we know that that has had deadly consequences. So I have I have always felt a, a strong obligation to stand up for El Paso and to demonstrate the incredible pride I feel about our community and our people and our families, but also to push back against hate, against xenophobia, against misinformation that people try to link with our beautiful community. Yeah, and, I'm, and now that we're, well, we're hitting our two-year mark for August 3rd. I'm sure that was really hard for you. Um, you know, we always, when August 3rd happened, um, it, it, it impacted everyone. But I thought about our leaders um, when that was going on because I saw uh, you, I saw the mayor, I saw uh, the, the county judge, and I was just thinking, well, what is going through their minds right now? So. What has been one of the biggest challenges as a leader for El Paso? Well, and, and you know, Mariana, you mentioned the community trauma and the, the collective trauma that we share from August 3rd, and it is real. Um, you know, and I think it's so important that we talk about it and that we are open about it and that, that we don't just try to tuck it away and and move on without addressing it. I think it's so important that we move forward, you know, that we are consistently moving forward and that we try to convert pain and trauma into resilience and strength. But the way to do that is to, to deal with the trauma. And so I, I, I want to thank you for these conversations that you're having. Um, I'm so grateful to so many people who are seeking to honor um, not just the families in the community, but to recognize that trauma. Yesterday, as a matter of fact, um, I toured the, the healing garden that the county put together and so grateful to them for creating a monument um, to, to our resilience and our pain and, and, and our struggle and our strength. Because if we didn't have that, then we really would have no monument or place to go. And we know that, that people need that. We know that that is a part of healing and a part of reflection. And so when, when I was touring the, the, the healing garden, I was reflecting and thinking about our conversation today and thinking back to two years ago. And I remember on that day, just thinking that my role as a leader was to use my voice and to try to provide as much comfort as possible, but also to, to seek the truth and speak the truth. And so I felt like my obligation as a leader was to speak the truth, which I did that day, and then to spend the vast majority of my time providing as much comfort. And in the months after August, I felt it was my obligation to work on legislation. You know, I have the power to do everything I can to create change. And I worked very hard for gun violence prevention legislation. I worked very hard to talk publicly about what happens when a community finds itself at the center of the, our gun violence epidemic and our, our nation's hate epidemic. We had a field hearing, my House Judiciary Committee had a field hearing at my request here in El Paso to talk about those very things and to build legislation around lessons learned. And the work hasn't stopped both the work in speaking the truth, as well as in the work of offering comfort and creating change. So I, I feel privileged to be able to serve in that capacity. And actually, I guess I really want to go through through this next question. Um, we have a special segment here at United and Resilient where we ask leaders in our community or someone who had a key role during August 3rd, uh, we, we call it, where were you on August 3rd? So how, how did you go about your day? Can you, can you tell us a little bit about that? How was your day? What, what were you doing? What happened that day for Congresswoman Escobar? You know, in talking about that day, I want to kind of talk about the week that preceded that day. Um, the week that preceded that day was a very tumultuous and busy week for me in Congress. I was working, my team and I were working to bring a, a bill to the floor. And in that week, um, my bill did not get to the floor uh, 
and and I had to really engage in a lot of negotiation to make some changes and some compromises. And so I was disappointed uh, leaving Washington because I knew that my bill wouldn't get to the floor until September because we were going to have to make changes. Um, and but at the same time, I was excited and happy because I was welcoming uh, another congressional delegation to El Paso at the very end of July. So we adjourned in Congress and a significant number of my colleagues flew with me home to El Paso. At that point, I had brought almost 20% of Congress to El Paso, not just to see the conditions in DHS facilities here in El Paso, but also in Ciudad Juarez, what was happening with immigrants, our ports of entry, which are key trade corridors. And, and, and just, I wanted people to know El Paso and our beauty and our hope and the, the beacon of light that we are for the country in, in the face of real darkness. And that Friday before the shooting, Friday on August uh, 2nd, was the last day of our, of our almost three-day congressional delegation visit in El Paso. And that afternoon, I saw the last of my guests off at the airport, and my heart was full of so much hope and so much joy because um, I, I just I felt so hopeful that that people were seeing the beauty of El Paso and and the way that we treat people and 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 what an exemplar we are as a community. Well, the next morning was Saturday, August third. Uh, and I had uh, a, a town hall meeting at Coronado High School. And it was a great town hall meeting. It was really well attended. I gave my update and we were beginning our conversation with the community. And in fact, had just been asked a question about gun violence from a, a constituent of mine um, who I have long respected. She, she has since passed away, um, but had received a, um, question from a constituent about guns and and uh, her rights to access to guns. And, and we engaged in a discussion. And shortly after that, a member of my team walked up and took the microphone from me. And she said, you have to shut this down. There's, there's a live shooter. And at that moment, that was like all I heard. Um, and I tried to be very calm and I said, you all, I need everybody to go ahead and head home. We've got to end the meeting. There's a live shooter. And my staff approached me and she's like, not here. It's at Cielo Vista. And she had mentioned it to me before, um, you know, when she first approached me. And so I immediately said, you all, sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. It's, it's somewhere near Cielo Vista. Um, but we need to, everybody needs to just head home and, um, please be safe and, and just shelter in place at home. My team and I drove back downtown to my office and it was very difficult for us to get information. Um, you know, we were trying every avenue we could to get information. And so we were getting it from wherever we could. Thankfully, the sheriff was very forthcoming and was sharing information with me later, uh, finally was getting information from the city and then heard about this press conference. But the news was literally just trickling in. And I remember thinking, oh, God, please, if there was an active shooter, which obviously there there was, let there just be injuries or hopefully no injuries at all. You know, in, in my head, I was praying that he was tackled before anything could happen or that that it was just a threat and nothing happened. But as the 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 fatality numbers were trickling in. It it was beyond horrible. It was beyond horrible. And I remember thinking, I wonder if this was driven by racism. And a member of my team came in and kind of said the same thing. And I remember telling her, no, 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 you know, let's not go there. Let's let's just let's just hope for the best. Let's just try to figure this out. And he we later learned he turned himself in, basically. Um, and confessed immediately, and it was driven by hate. And that day is really deeply ingrained in my head, and I know 
that it was for everybody. And, and my phone was blowing up um, because, you know, my family members, both in El Paso and outside of El Paso, everyone was checking in on each other. Um, everyone was afraid that someone they loved might be at that Walmart or might have been at that Walmart. And thank God my mother was at my town hall meeting because she shops at that Walmart. And, um, you know, it's a it's a routine for her. And um, and then that day, you know, later that day, we went to the Family Reunification Center and it it just was a day that kicked off incredibly profound compound trauma for the community. And with every given moment and hour that passed that seemed like an eternity, and just as the news would get worse and worse, it just felt like at what point does the news, the bad news end? And it finally ended and we knew the number of dead. We, we were getting images of the wounded. We were hearing stories of families who were calling their family members and, and got voicemail because their family member was inside. It just, it was horrible. Um, but, you know, I will tell you in the days after the, the other memory that is imprinted on my brain was the incredibly beautiful memorial right outside of Walmart. Mm -hmm. The thousands upon thousands of flowers, the rosaries, the candles, the photographs, the people embracing and weeping and coming together in music, in prayer, in loss, in sorrow, uh, in comfort. It was, it, 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 it is um, something I will never forget, obviously. And one of the things that I want to highlight from what you just mentioned is about this moment with your mom. Um, you know, what people don't understand from people who are outside from El Paso or Ciudad Juarez even, because I know even a lot of uh, Juarenses go to that Walmart to shop. Um, it's our Walmart. It's our, it's where, you know, I used, um, I used to cross over every day, you know, for school. I used to live in Juarez and study here in El Paso, as many, many people do here in the border. And that's where you stop. That's where you stop to get your groceries. So I think everyone's immediate reaction was like, where, where are my friends? Where, where's my family? And I had a very similar um situation as yours because my mom was going there she was on her way when I called her right in like don't like this is happening um so first of all thank you so much for sharing that and second of all I just I just want to understand how do you go about that day as a leader while staying in a state of shock because I guess we were all shocked and even that Sunday we were the city felt so, I don't know, like, like the light of El Paso completely shut down that day. It, you can feel it in the air. So how do you go about that day as being a leader, as being, okay, we, we need to do this. How do I show up as a leader, as a congresswoman um, while staying in shock and, and being worried about your own and your own emotions? That was really challenging for me to, to keep my emotions in check. And I was unsuccessful. <laughs> there were many times I was unsuccessful. Um, you know, I, I, I didn't want to cry at, with people at their bedside because I didn't want them to feel they needed to comfort me. I didn't want to cry with people in the hospital waiting rooms because I didn't want them to, to, I didn't want the focus taken off of them. I didn't want to cry on national television. You know, I, the, the, because I, I felt it was, again, the word obligation keeps coming up that as an elected leader, my obligation is to focus on the needs of the community. And so we did everything we could to focus on the needs of the community. I have the most incredible team. 
And my DC folks flew in and it was, you know, all of us were here basically to wrap our arms around the community, to try to uplift the community, to try to help everybody in, in whatever way that we could. Um, but we also were mourning with the community. And so there were a lot of funerals that, that we attended, a lot of bedside conversations in hospitals, a lot of sitting in waiting rooms in hospitals, a lot of visiting people in, um, inside their homes, you know, the, those who lost their loved ones. And so, you know, my purpose through that period was to make sure that people knew we were here to help. And so when I would visit, you know, families in the hospital, I'd have staff there with our business cards and, you know, look, if you need help with social security or the IRS or the VA, or if, you know, there are things that pop up that you shouldn't have to deal with that, that, you know, you, we, we are here to help and, and whatever we can do, we want to do that. So we wanted to be as helpful as possible and as comforting as possible. But I also felt I had an obligation to, to again, be a voice to call out people who use hateful rhetoric and to tell the country that this was the consequence of the kind of hate that had been spewed for so long. This is United and Resilient. We'll be right back. My name is Ames Davis. I have the honor of serving as the executive director for the West Texas chapter of the American Red Cross. Where was I on August 3rd, 2019? It was a beautiful summer morning. I had traveled to Austin, Texas to spend time with cherished family and friends for the weekend. As I was enjoying the cool morning, a cup of coffee and the precious time with my granddaughter, Camden, who was six at the time, there was a breaking news alert from one of the local El Paso news channels that popped up on my phone. The alert read, active shooter in the Cielo Vista area. In that moment, my heart skipped a beat. My community was in need and I was hundreds of miles away. I paused, took a breath and immediately began to make calls to our great community partners so that we could jump into action where we were needed. Our community would need to pull all of our resources together to aid those in need and until additional help could arrive. My first call was to the Salvation Army and then the food bank. Our organizations had cultivated a partnership and worked well together on many occasions. This day was devastatingly different, but we would do what was required of us to serve our community. My next call was to the Office of Emergency Management the voice on the other end of the line said, this is the real thing. We're gonna need your help. This is the real thing. Those words were chilling to me. Instructions were given and we jumped into action. As the call ended with the EOC, a call came in from Cruz Roja de Ciudad, Juarez. The man said, Ames, this is Miguel with Cruz Roja. If there is anything you need, we are here to help our sister city. How can we help? Meanwhile, local Red Cross volunteers and staff and those from across the nation began to mobilize and aid in the response. I spent the next few hours trying to find a way home. All of the flights, all of the rental cars, they were all taken. The first available flight out of Austin was the following morning. It was a sleepless night for me. As I approached the gate, I saw a sea of Red Cross shirts, familiar faces, colleagues, and volunteers. And in that moment, I knew that El Paso was gonna be okay, that we were gonna be okay. In that moment, I realized that the Red Cross symbol for me was what it was for so many other people who had experienced a disaster. It's a symbol of hope, a symbol of healing, and a symbol of help. There were so many reporters and media present on board, and for only a moment I wished, I hope that they don't ask anything about this situation, about what's going on in El Paso. I hope that they wait until we get there and turn on their cameras. To my surprise, 
They asked about the people of El Paso. They asked about the community. They asked about the culture. And I had the opportunity to share with them that this is a community of compassion and care and love and share with them all of the great things about El Paso. And when they got off the plane, they were kind, they were compassionate, and they told the story of what was going on here. For the days and weeks to come, the American Red Cross worked side by side in the Family Reunification Center, Family Assistance Center, and in the community with law enforcement agencies, victim services, nonprofits, and other agencies to help heal a community in need. El Pasoans are resilient, strong, caring, loving. It's a community that has embraced me since the day that I moved here. And I continue to embrace and call home for days to come, for years to come. As we come together on a day of healing and unity, I would like to say thank you to everyone who came together to remember lives to save lives. Now my next question, Congresswoman, would be, where does one as a leader look for guidance when leading a community during such a tragedy like August 3rd? Uh, did you make any connections to other cities that were also impacted by something similar, such as Orlando, Las Vegas, um, any other community like that? I did. And, you know, uh, Mariana, unfortunately, there is like this guidebook now for members of Congress who deal with mass shootings. This is such a horrible thing to acknowledge that are in our country. We have so many mass shootings and it's become such a regular occurrence that there's basically a to do list now that's been created. So thankfully, I had other colleagues who reached out and who I leaned on for advice and, and for um, guidance. Also, a lot of members of the community offered incredible guidance. And additionally, going forward, I sought a lot of guidance from the community when it came to legislation. And I leaned on members of the community. And so I'll give you an example. When we had one of our hearings in Washington, D.C. about gun violence, I invited one of the um, members of our healthcare community who was in the emergency room on August 3rd and in the days after uh, to come and tell his story. And it was one of the most powerful moments for me in Congress was having a, a, an El Paso physician talk in depth about what he saw, what he witnessed, but also the trauma he experienced as a result of having to deal with and care for warlike injuries. And so, you, you know, my, I took a lot of comfort and guidance from colleagues, but I learned a lot from community members and I did my best to uplift their voices so that they could use their voices and try to effectuate change as well. Um, effectuate change and educate the country about what happened here that day and what has happened in the months and now years since. Perfect. And, and it is very sad because also as the FRC, you know, we are uh, approached by other cities. Um, not too long ago, we were approached by Houston and they approached me and they asked me, Mariana, how do how do we do this? We just want to be prepared just in case this happens in our community. And it's just very, very sad um, because as an El Pasoan, I don't want any other community to go through something like this. And I don't want, you know, it's just very, very hard. Um, and now I want to segue into long-term recovery. Actually, um, as you know, well, we mentioned um, in this conversation, we're getting close to the two-year mark of August 3rd. So uh, why is long-term recovery so important? Why is it so important to seek out for help if you still need it? And 
What is it? What is community long term recovery to you, Congresswoman? You know, the that's a great question. And and as I mentioned um, earlier in our conversation, it is so important to recognize, acknowledge and confront trauma because trauma stays with you. It stays with you forever. And there is a very intense trauma for those obviously who were at the Walmart, for those family members who lost a loved one, for those people who survived, and for the family members of those who survived. But there is also a trauma for the entire community. And, you know, there are different types of of trauma and essentially everybody in El Paso is now a gun violence uh, um, survivor as a result of what happened on August 3rd, because anyone who is impacted by gun violence in any way is a gun violence survivor. And so we have to acknowledge that. We also have to acknowledge that, that, that even for those who are fortunate enough to survive, who were there on that day and survive, they have a long journey. I mean, there are still um, constituents of mine, there are still El Pasoans who were there that day who still need surgery, who are still going through physical therapy. Um, There are still financial consequences that family members who, you know, survivors and victims um, and their family members there's still long-term financial damage. People lost their jobs because they were in the hospital for so long and had to recover. People fell behind on their bills. Um, the, the, the community of El Paso, as an, as an example, we are having to fund as taxpayers, both the prosecution and the defense of the domestic terrorist. So we are having to fund the district attorney's office, their experts, everything that comes with prosecuting this crime. But because he gets a public defender, we're funding that as well. So it is, it, it, the, 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 the trauma and the journey doesn't end on August 3rd, 2019. It, it did not. And, and it's ongoing. And so we have to acknowledge that. We have to deal with it. We have to continue to work toward healing. It's been very important to me to continue to fight for more mental health resources for our community. And our community has been through a lot. I mean, the, the mental health resources have been drained, not just because of August 3rd, but then we had COVID. And then we've had you know, other challenges for the mental health community and providers in, the, in, in, in recent months as well. And it's going to be ongoing. And so we have to be very honest and open about all those challenges that exist. Um, But we can also show the country and continue to show the country how to lead in, in, in our recovery and how to be an example in our recovery. And I think by honoring the people who were harmed on August 3rd and the community that came together after August 3rd by doing that on an annual basis, by fighting for the resources we need in in the path forward, we are showing the nation what it means to recover. So we have to keep being who we are, but we also have to shine a light on, on what we're going through. Thank you so much for sharing that because, um, as we continue to involve as CFRC and we're trying to encourage people to, you know, if they need help to ask for help that we're here, you know, sometimes they're disencouraged because they feel, I guess, a sort of guilt to ask for help because it's been two years, but it's really not that like, it's okay if you're still, you know, processes this i know whenever we go out to events now that things are getting better with the pandemic and we're starting to get out there 
when I talk to people, they're like, yeah, I mean, I still look for the exit signs whenever I'm in a, in a shopping center or doing my groceries and those little things, you know, that we do now is because of this. So now looking back two years after the tragic event, what are the lessons that you learned as a person and as an El Pasoan? Wow. Um, that's a, that's a great question. You know, I, I have learned that we are stronger than we know. I have learned that even in the face of an abyss of pain, El Pasoans still rise up to take care of one another. I mean, I will never forget the long lines of El Pasoans who stood in just draining heat so that they could give blood. I mean, that happened almost immediately. Um, and the, you know, people who wanted to mark that moment with some permanence. I mean, I will tell you, I know a lot of people as an example who got tattoos that day um, or not that day, following that day of El Paso or of the date or El Paso strong um, because it left such an imprint on them that they that they actually have now a permanent physical manifestation of that day. Um, people who contributed money and um, GoFundMe accounts. And so we are not just so much stronger than we realize, but we are so deeply rooted in love and caring that nothing can erase that. And it makes me so proud of our community. Yes, the way that El Paso showed up, it was just wonderful to see. You know, I at the time I was I was working at as a journalist and being in media, you know, your friends always contact you to know the details. And it was just so overwhelming. Um, all the messages that I got that day wanting to know how to help. They just wanted to show up, you know, even if it's just, you know, I, I clearly remember um, the guy with pizza boxes that he was just like, hey, for people who are donating blood. Um, so it was just it was just so wonderful to see. And it was very com uh, comforting to to see that and that El Paso is really bad. And we were we're continuing to be that. And actually, last year for the Luminari event that we host at Escarate Park, um, I remember I was in the entrance. Um, we had like a little system to let cars in to the Luminaria. And I remember that the line was, I remember one of the police officers that was helping us that day with traffic and with um, security and all that stuff. He approached me and he told me the line is all the way to the freeway and beyond. So I just remember thinking, wow, El Paso is really about being united and being together. And even though we were in the midst of the pandemic, you know, they really wanted to show up and, and be united. Really, that's what El Pasoans wanted. And I just love my community so much. And I'm so proud to be an El Pasoan. Now, um, Congresswoman Escobar, I'm thinking about, you know, one of my initial questions was, what was going through your mind? How did you process this as a as an individual, as an El Pasoans? Now, as as two years gone by, how do you continue to take care of your mental health while taking care of your community? And thank you for asking. And I think um, we all need to recognize mental health challenges that we each face. I mean, there are very few people <laughs> who do not face mental health challenges. And I think um, the, the, the August 3rd shooting, probably exacerbated that for many people. COVID certainly did. You know, I can tell you for me, um, I have experienced other traumas as well since August 3rd. And so I, I recognized that I needed help. And I, I speak to a therapist on a regular basis. I, I, I had not before, um, and, and by before, I mean before January 6th, another trauma that I experienced um, was the attack on, on the Capitol. And I was in the gallery and I was one of the, the last of the people evacuated from the gallery as to obviously to, to, over, to stop us from doing our job, but also to, to cause us harm. Um, and it was after that event when I 
thought, I, I think I need to, <laughs> to, to talk to somebody. Yes. And so I have uh, taken time that I need to talk with a therapist and I try to engage in self-care in, in the sense that, um, you know, I try to recognize moments that are challenging for me and I try to do things that will bring me joy, spend time with my children, spend time with my family, um, recognize my own humanity. And, um, and my therapist has given me some great tools for how to address my own trauma and, and how to engage in that self-care. And, and there is absolutely no shame in recognizing that we need help and there is no shame in asking for help. And it's important to share that message. It's important for everybody to recognize that it is not a weakness to ask for help, that it's, it's merely a recognition of our, of our humanity. And there are people who can give us tools to feel better and to be better and to be stronger. And those tools and those people are out there. We just need to reach out for them. I love that. And I love what you say about tools, because I think that's what's all about. Right. I I also join a regular uh, therapy session and, you know, it's all about having tools when something arises and you know how to cope or, or how to use those tools and how to go about that situation. And thank you so much for being so open about it, because, you know, sometimes that day, that was me, you know, I was just thinking about you all thinking about what is going on on their minds, because I mean, if I feel like this, how are they feeling and how are they taking care of their mental health? So thank you so much for being open and vulnerable about it. You know, there's a lot of strength in asking for help too. So um, my next question would be, uh, Congresswoman, what does resiliency mean to you? Resiliency, I think for me, is what our community did, which was try to rise above something that is incredibly challenging. And in some respects, use the lessons learned from those challenges to make you stronger. And, you know, that's and it's hard to achieve resiliency. And, and I will be honest with you, I resent that El Paso has to continue to seek resilience, you know, after um, the August third, actually before the August third shooting, being ground zero for so many attacks by hateful politicians and by, uh, you know, people who tried to use racism as a tool, and you know, we were the testing ground for some of the most horrific anti-immigrant policies our generation has ever seen, um, you know, and and having to be resilient in the face of that pain and, and, and that those horrors, then August 3rd, then COVID and the recovery post COVID. Um, you know, I do resent the fact that we have to go through so much. And, and I wonder when will our community get a break? When will our community not have to um, live through so much, but you know, I, 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 I do my best to focus on the lessons learned, to focus on the path forward, to focus on building uh, uh, over that pain and achieving strength. And that's, I think, what is resiliency is to me, you know, both both personally, but as well as as a community that that we continue to lean on each other and that when some of us are down, the others work hard to lift us up and, and that, that we are each other's safety net. So that's resiliency. And I, I think El Paso, you know, good or bad, we, we've had to be resilient, but we have, I think, demonstrated significant beauty in, in our resilience. 100% I agree and you know that's something that we actually spoken about before in previous episodes and I've discussed I think uh, uh, with other leaders about it feels that like one thing after another thing after another thing is happening with El Paso and we really just show up that's that's what we do and that's and I also you know hope 
and pray for the day that we don't have to be resilient anymore. Uh, so we'll, we'll be hopeful and we'll work really hard towards that. And that brings me to one of my final questions. What does the road ahead look like for El Paso? My my view is I have to continue to do my job to bring as many resources to the community as possible so that as, as little of the burden of recovery falls on the shoulders of the community. You know, I, I believe that the federal government has an obligation to continue to help the community as much as possible because the federal government has failed to create communities that are safe from gun violence. Um, I think the state government has that same obligation as well. And so, you know, I think we've got to hold our leaders and ourselves accountable to ensuring that the path ahead is not overly burdensome for our community. I think that um, I will continue to look to other incredible El Pasoans like you and others who are going to do everything possible to continue to uplift our community. I'm so grateful to you, so grateful to so many for, for the, 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 the hand up and, and the, the comfort that you continue to give El Paso and El Pasoans. Um, so I will continue to seek comfort from you all and leadership and support and, and guidance from you all as well. Um, and, and I think our path forward, I hope, is a bright one. And we have to assert that it will be and do everything possible to continue to be that shining light, that beacon of hope, that community of grace and beauty that will exemplify the best of America for our country. I love that. Thank you so much. And now my final question, what is the message of hope you'll like to give to our community, especially to those who were deeply impacted by August 3rd? We will persevere. I have absolutely no doubt. We will persevere. We will emerge from the darkness much stronger. We are here for you. We will remain here for you, for you and you are not alone, but we will get through this. Thank you so much for being here. It was truly an honor having this conversation with you. And well, thank you so much. And we hope this episode serves you and your loved ones. Thank you. Thank you, Mariana. And thanks to everyone listening. Thank you so much for listening today. We hope this content serves you and your loved ones as well. If you enjoyed our podcast, please do not forget to subscribe and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at El Paso United FRC to learn more about our commitment to the community's long-term recovery. Please join us on the next episode.